welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Back. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Um poor planning. I'm still eating some turkey jerky. Okay. So I'm gonna find a way during this episode to Silently eat turkey jerky. Well, it's funny you should mention this episode because this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi is The Happiest Day in the Life of Oli Maki. You may recall that we mentioned this film a few months ago. Mubi distributed the film in theaters nationwide, and now you can watch it exclusively on their service. In 1962, Finland boxer Oli Maki uh, has a shot at the world featherweight title. His sudden national stardom changes his small town life. In the midst of this, however, all that, uh, all that, uh, oh, Oli, sorry. I wrote Ollie, and it's like, that's a different boxer. Um, <laughs> so in the midst of this, all that Ollie can think about is the woman that he's fallen in love with. It is, uh, in reviews that I've read, everyone talks about it being inspiring and delightful and but just an, uh, an overall positive film. It just made the AV Club's list of the best films of 2017 there, so far. There you go. Way to go, movie. Uh, and then there is a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. That's you, so pay attention. Uh, you can try Mubi free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship for your free month. And I want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com. Uh, earbuds, the professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives, and they're available at a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com. But uh, if you put in some extra effort and you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler. Yes? Who's our guest? Oh, it's, uh, let's see, Editor-at-Large is the official title, correct? Yes. It's our Editor-at-Large, Scott Nye. How are you doing, Scott? Good. I usually uh, pass the time while you're reading off your business by looking at your wall of movies and uh, wondering how you own some of the movies that you own, because I don't think you've seen some of those movies. Oh, uh, it so happens, I'm, yeah. I'm often curious how they wound up in your collection, but they're not there right now because yeah. we're still in your semi-abandoned house. Yeah, if you can tell from our, hmm? our voices echoing off. Um, Casey Affleck standing in the corner under a sheet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it is, uh, I don't think I realize just how much my DVD wall, uh, absorbed the sound, uh, in here, but yeah, it's pretty damn echoey. All those Riddlers Uh, probably helped. Probably. Yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, so yeah, Scott is here. And one thing that we wanted to talk about, uh, before we get into the, uh, topic proper is, uh, David, you had this idea. Well, cause everyone's about. doing it and I, uh, um, and if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? Only if it sounded fun and this sounded fun. Okay. 
Um, especially since the three of us who are sort of battleshipretention.com for the most part. That's um, right. <laughs> um, we should uh, have a t-shirt that says I am battleshipretention.com <laughs> for the um, most part. For yeah. the most part. <laughs> on the back for the most yeah. part. Um, uh, I thought it'd be fun for us to just go through our list uh, like the AV Club did and like everyone else is doing of the best movies of 2017. Our favorite movies of 2017 so far. No, I'm sticking to... Um, things that have actually been released mm-hmm. because I'm looking at my um, top five. I just listed off my actual top five on my list. Three yeah. of those five have not been in theaters yet. Right. Uh, one of them doesn't even have a distribution deal yet. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll kick it off. We're not going to do a lot of discussion. I'll right. just kick it off. Uh, surprisingly, um, no, not surprisingly. I like this movie. I reserve the right to switch these around by, by the end of the year. Okay. But, um, uh, right now, my number five slot is uh, Berlin Syndrome, the okay. uh, uh, horror thriller um, sort of uh, you know a treatise on uh, um, male uh, violent male entitlement uh, <laughs> uh, that I that I saw at Sundance this year. Um, it really stuck with me. Um, but again, I do reserve the right to put Casting Jambonet in this spot. <laughs> um, oh, okay. Because I love it. I love Casting Jambonet so much. I probably think about it more than I think about Berlin Syndrome. Okay. Uh, number four for me. Here's the one that's surprising, uh, but I really liked it. Number four has got to be Brigsby Bear. Okay. Um, wait, that hasn't come out yet, has it? No, but it's going Way to. Way to go, David. Oh, no, it won't come out. Um, Not by I, the time this episode is out, certainly. You're right. Okay. Right. Um, okay, then that makes number four for me is The Big Sick, then. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's a great movie. I feel I don't feel bad <laughs> about that at all. Uh, number three is Wonder Woman. Um, number two is Get Out. And number one, just in theaters this weekend, is David Lowry's A Ghost Story. Okay. That's my list right now. All right. Scott, what all do you right. got? Uh, well, I will mention that in my general top ten of the year so far, Oli Mackie is in there. I think it's extremely good and very romantic, uh, but it's not in the top five, which goes thusly. Uh, number five is So Young Kim's Love Song, which I saw at Sundance last year, and which has really stuck with me and is a really powerful, engaging love story. Yeah, I like that movie. Uh, number four is Hermia and Helena. It is the new film by Matthias Pinero, who made The Princess of France, which was in my top three two years ago. Uh, and it's another one of his, like semi Shakespeare adaptations plays with time a lot. It's a lot of fun and super insightful and I cannot wait to see it again because it's really for an 80 minute movie. Very complicated. I still haven't seen the princess of France. Oh, you got um, it. But I saw, out. we talked, I would talk about this. I yeah. feel like every time you're on the show, but the one before that, which is it Viola? Yeah. Viola. Yeah. I like that a lot. Princess of France still on Netflix. Okay. <laughs> uh, number three is personal shopper. The Olivia Isaias movie. Uh, which I know David doesn't count as a I, this year, and that's why he's sighing heavily. As no, I'm not sighing. I'm saying because I meant to say this beforehand. Um, my asterisk for my because I'm very strict about <laughs> what counts. Um, Personal Shopper and All These Sleepless Nights are both better than any of the five movies that I named, I think. Uh, But they're 2016 movies, so they don't make the list. Well, I do not agree that it's better than A Ghost Story, which is my number two. And then my number one, of course, Terrence Malick's Song to Song, his most inventive and interesting movie in the last decade, I'd say. All right. Uh, I should say I haven't seen a lot of movies this year, so uh, you'll probably be able to tell that. Uh, So So you've been in school and then you've been moving. So, yeah. Yes. No, I haven't seen a lot of 2017 movies, yeah. I guess is what I mean. Um, so, okay. 
Uh, my number five, I just mentioned it uh, uh, on this week's movie journal, which is uh, the documentary Midnight Return, which, uh, just to repeat, I think uh, it hasn't... Oh, you know what? It hasn't released yet in 2017, but you know what? I'll count it anyway. Okay. Um, number four is Wonder Woman. Number three, much to my surprise, because I was not a big fan of the first one, is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Once again, that should tell you how few movies I've seen this year. It would be um, in my top 10 of movies that have been released. Okay. In my top 10. Yeah. Um, number two is the lost city of Z, which, uh, the lost city of Z, whatever you want to say. I know that the director says Z, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, he does. Okay. Yeah. I've been yeah. saying Z because um, it's in the movie. Yeah. And so, uh, and then my number one is, uh, Sophia Coppola's the beguiled as right of on. right now. So, uh, yeah, an interesting blend of tones there, I must say. But uh, yeah, would you guys say it is a? Uh, it's been a good year so far. Oh, yes. I'm blown away by how so. strong a okay. year this has been. Like I have, if everything had come out, like I have a top ten that I would like would stand by already, mm-hmm. and it's and it's uh, only July. Um, but the one thing that I, uh, Scott, I was mentioning to you that this mentioned this to you the other night. Um, I'd say three of my top five, uh, maybe even four, depending on how you um, categorize Berlin Syndrome, are pretty like have mainstream sensibilities mm-hmm. you know i mean uh, ghost story is obviously the outlier there yeah um as casting joe Monet would be if it had made the list but get out and wonder woman are major studio releases and the big sick is technically not but it's you know it doesn't right it's not a, it's not a you know uh formalistically inventive or challenging movie it's a really solid sort of uh um, mainstream entertainment that is also really smart and really funny. So There's I, a reason they're advertising the hell out of it on Spotify. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what I'm saying is this has been a really strong year this far, certain the, so far this year, um, certainly by my standards of being generally skeptical of uh, mm. big uh, studio movies um, for big studio type mainstream entertainment. Now, let me ask you guys this. Do you have your least favorite movie in front of you? Oh, uh, geez. No, I'd have to. You have to go searching for I'd it. I have to go searching for it. Okay. Least favorite movie that has been released in theaters. Yes. Um, I mean, this feels like you know uh, kicking someone right down because no one, even, everyone forgot about this movie the weekend it came out. But everything, everything is probably my least favorite. Oh uh, yeah, I don't yeah exactly. that one. <laughs> it's one with the name. What, one thing about it. <laughs> it's the girl from the Hunger Games, um, and she's sick, and it's, so it's like it's like boy in the plastic bubble, except it's okay. the girl in the um, you know Altadena uh, <laughs> <laughs> modernist home. <laughs> um, okay, mine is uh, forty-seven meters down, uh, mm-hmm. which is not what I expected when I saw it. But boy, oh boy! Uh, and then Scott, you know what? Yours will have to just remain. A fun surprise. I saw Band-Aid recently. It was terrible. That's the last really bad movie I can think of. Band-Aid? Which one is that? It's with Adam Pally and... That's right. Like, that's right. Zoe Listerine. Yeah. It's got one amazing <laughs> shot. Zoe Lister Jones. That is an entire scene in this one shot. And that's the only good thing of the movie. Okay. That's something uh, my old uh, co-worker at the video store in Chicago, uh, J-Lo, was what we called him. Yeah. Um, uh, his name was Jeremy Long. But we used to talk about, uh, like one moment of cinematic greatness we would always yeah, talk about if, totally. we'd, if we'd seen and it was kind of just a fun thing we do like uh you know that movie sucked but what was the one moment of cinematic greatness so we were like even like joe dirt or whatever i try to come <laughs> up with like i really like that shot it was like it was a fun exercise to try and find something that you love and even in a movie you hate sure i think that's uh, i think that's actually a very positive exercise as well um, but enough positivity. Uh, <laughs> we need to move on to something that, uh, if you're a part of the uh, Battleship Retention Facebook 
page, not a Which group, if, not if a group anymore. Um, I don't know the difference, but if you're not, you should be, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, I've been trying to engage the listeners a little bit more and, uh, uh, throw out, uh, some, some this or that. Uh, oh, and, those it's, are fun. and it's interesting cause I threw out uh, today, uh, LA confidential or Chinatown and it's pretty much an even split. Really? Yeah. Half See, those people are wrong. Yeah. My, I picked Chinatown. Yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like heads and shoulders above. But see, what's, what's interesting is because on a recent episode, you talked about being surprised at the Jaws Jurassic Park, how close that was. Um, yeah. And I can put myself in the headspace of understanding why someone would say sure. Jurassic Park um, because of their age or just, you know, uh, how they engage with movies. But uh, yeah, Scott's right. It's so clearly <laughs> Chinatown. Yeah. I mean, I, I love LA confidential and what I'll say is that like I arrived at Chinatown from LA confidential and I'm sure that happened with a lot of people, but just because you saw one first doesn't yeah. necessarily mean it's the better one. And also like as, as great as LA confidential is, it does not have what I consider to be the best villain in film history, which is Noah cross, um, played wonderfully by John Houston. But anyway, enough of that. Uh, so, okay. But if you're on the Facebook page, then you know that I posted this about a week ago and I uh, wanted to talk about it. I threw it to uh, David and I believe I said, I linked to it and I said, can you believe this bullshit or something like that? Um, yeah. And then I have to admit, I didn't read the whole thing. Right. And you just said like, let's talk about it on the show, which we are now doing. Good. Yes. Um, and I might need to read the whole article. Thankfully it's pretty short, uh, appropriately because this is from the minimal, the minimalists. Oh. Um, it's not and just so, a cover name. Uh, indeed, it is a it is a whole lifestyle, um, including uh, minimal thought. Uh, oh boy! You know. So anyway, but somebody posted this on my Facebook. Uh, Choose the side, uh, listeners. Battles of retention of the minimalists. <laughs> my guess is, if they're listening to this show, they have chosen <laughs> not a minimal lifestyle. Um, okay, so uh, so somebody posted this on my Facebook wall and uh, decided to ruin my day with it. Um, so here we go. I'm going to read this and then I will get your reaction. Uh, Are you one of those people who collects DVDs proudly displaying your stockpile on a wall, shelf, or special area designated for your dozens of favorite movies? Have you thought about why you own all those DVDs? Do you really plan to rewatch the same movies three, four, or a dozen times? Both of us referencing the minimalists. Both of us had fairly sizable DVD collections before taking our journeys into minimalism. We wasted thousands of dollars on these collections, often purchasing movies we'd already seen. And then, yeah, yeah. Okay. We're, we're not far in David. Um, and then we, yeah, I know. Uh, and then we allowed our extensive collections to collect dust. It's like collect twice, but that's fine. Um, or we'd occasionally rewatch a movie living in the past, attempting to reconstruct an old moment instead of creating new ones. But collecting is just hoarding with a prettier name. Don't believe us? Look it up. The Oxford American Writers Thesaurus lists the following synonyms under the f- first definition of collection. Hoard, pile, heap, stockpile. Yes, collecting things you don't need, things you don't get value from, is tantamount to hoarding. The two of us still watch movies, but we watch new movies, creating new experiences in our lives. We strengthen our relationships by enjoying movies with friends. We grow by talking about those experiences after they happen, developing a better understanding of ourselves in the process. Let go of that DVD collection. You can sell it and make some money. And stop watching the same things over and over. Live your life instead. There is an entire world out there, and there is so much value you can add to that world, so much you can contribute beyond your We're certain of it. Or how about this? Keep the movies that add value to your life. There's nothing wrong with an occasional rerun, a glance in the rear view, but then look forward and let go of the rest. 
Uh, I mean, this person obviously doesn't think about movies in the same way that you and I do. Like, why would would you buy a movie you hadn't seen? That's what's insane to me. No, I buy movies I haven't seen all the time. um, I I do it from time to time. As as Scott has mentioned, every once in a while there are movies (laughs) in my collection that I uh, have not gotten around to seeing yet. Um, And can I also say, this has nothing to do with movies, but um, as a rhetorical tool saying... The dictionary defines it as this, so therefore it is this is is wrong. It's a right. fallacy. The dictionary now this is, is this is the thesaurus, uh, which is so case, much more dependable. That it's a descriptivist text. Mm. It's not telling you what things are or how they should be. It's telling you this is how it's been used. Yeah. So if people are using the word collect yeah. to mean something more refined than hoard, then at some point the dictionary will catch up to that. Anyway, this is just uh, no, that's, uh, that's, that's that's interesting. I didn't even think of that, but uh, um, but that's true. It, well, it's a pet peeve. Yeah, it's uh, Scott. Had you seen this before? This uh, this article? Uh, yeah, I had. I okay. mean, uh, we could probably do. I could easily do a whole episode about DVD collecting because it's a central part of my life. But yeah. um, do you still buy DVDs as opposed to Blu-rays? As opposed to Blu-rays. Well, it depends on if it's only available on DVD. Sure. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's some stuff that, like, the chances of being upgraded and the relative value that upgrade would have are quite minimal like the princess of france only came out on dvd it's a new film it's probably not going to get a blu-ray release um similarly like a lot of studio kind of uh programmers from the 30s they've only come out on dvd they're not going to get you know blu-ray releases necessarily so there's a lot of stuff yeah i do buy on dvd I think I have, not that I want to throw my lot in with these guys, but I have limited, uh, it's one of the impositions I put on myself to keep my collection from getting out of hand. Yeah, totally. Is, is to say, like, I'm, I'm all Blu-ray now, with the exception of something that isn't um, going to, like, uh, that was in, you know, standard definition to begin with, then I feel, mm-hmm. you know, like, I feel like, uh, I think, um, uh, like, you know, that I could put up the, the critic the tv series on blu-ray because i'm pretty right. sure like a a cartoon video right. know, a cartoon show from the 90s probably it's a, that's as good as it's gonna look yeah anyway so i guess i feel okay about that and the critic is fucking great and has a high revisibility <laughs> <laughs> revisitability yeah. uh quotient um david sounds like you're living but, in the past but yeah maybe but yeah i do um that is a, a limit i've put on myself but the other thing is i mean in general as far as hoarding movies if you will the purpose they have in my collection goes way beyond the time in which I'm spending watching them. Like I have, I have one of those TV stands that has a shelf kind of built into it. So I put on that shelf a lot of movies by my favorite directors. So I'm constantly, whenever I'm watching TV, thinking about Ingmar Bergman or Terrence Malick or Douglas Sirk because they're right in front of me. So like they're, (laughs) I'm constantly reminded of my favorite movies because they're surrounding me at all times. Huh. Yeah, there's something to be said about being physically surrounded by this. It's one of the things that I used to love about video stores. Yeah. Um, and uh, But I think what I would say is that um, putting aside, you know, my hyperbolic anger, um, what I'll say is that, you know, I agree, David, they obviously don't think of movies the way we do, but I think it actually goes beyond that. And I think it is also just the nature of art and the idea of, yes, art is an experience, but why is it an experience that they think you can only have once? Like you can, yes, the art doesn't change, but you change as a person. And so every time yeah. you revisit yeah, it, absolutely. it's a new experience. What was this guy? I only uh, listened to a song one time. That's exactly <laughs> the example. Yeah, what psychopath is this guy? Yeah. 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 I, I told David that, uh, the image in my head was, uh, these guys finish reading war and peace and say, <laughs> wow, that was really good. And then they throw it into a wood chipper yeah, and go, that was great. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's, yeah, I guess it is treating art as like a, 
commodity, I guess. Um, yeah, it's, and even then, it, maybe not. Maybe they, maybe it's like they value that experience and they talk about it with friends and all that and, and that sort of thing. But at the same time, it's just because we've, uh, we've had this discussion before, which is, you know, as far as like um, somebody making a movie, there are movies that are made probably assuming people are going to want to watch it twice. But there's Mm -hmm. this idea of should a movie be made with the intention of making maximum impact on first viewing? Because some people might only watch this movie once. Um, So like up to the filmmaker. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just, it brings up interesting things, but I feel like their, their view while seeming so enlightened actually is remarkably limiting of how a person should view art. Um, yeah. Uh, and just to further tease our uh, upcoming DVD, DVD and Blu-ray collecting (laughs) episode that we're absolutely going to do now. Um, another way that I've reconfigured my purpose is I do kind of emphasize rewatchability. Um, like I'm, you know, to something we'll get into later in the episode. I'm really looking forward to buying the pirates, uh, mm-hmm. two and three on right. Blu-ray because I will absolutely watch them again and again. Um, this weekend I saw baby driver and I was like, I need to watch at world's end. And I was like, fuck, I can't believe I don't own at world's end. Right. Not that I think it was, you know, it was nowhere near like my favorite movies of that year or whatever, but I was like, that's a movie. Like I saw it twice in the theater. I want to see it again. Um, that's, that's the kind of stuff that I'm, uh, most of the kind of stuff that I'm, that I'm buying. Yeah, it's. I think for for me at this point, rewatchability and yeah, I don't know if this is a word, but lendability, like the idea of That's talking to someone, in, you, which I kind of like. Well, it's just because part of me feels like because uh, I recommend movies to friends all the time, uh, and I feel like well, if that person's going to put it, if they are willing to put in the time. Well, yeah. some, sometimes the movies aren't necessarily easy to find. So it's like, all right, I'll save you the, the time to look for it and I'll save you the money to rent it or whatever. Yeah. And if I have it, I'll just lend it to you. Like it's already a huge, it, it already means a lot to me that they're even willing to entertain the notion of yeah. watching something I recommend. I, the least I can do is uh, help them out with that. I so regret that your DVD collection is not here mm-hmm. so I can point at something really dumb that you happen to own and say like how yeah. many times have people borrowed? I don't know. What do you have? That's dumb. Predators. (laughs) Predators. Okay. There you go. Although I don't, Uh, here's the thing. That movie's not nearly as dumb as maybe it should be. Um, otherwise I don't think I would, uh, I would own it, but we, I own some, some dumb things. Yes. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so listeners feel free to weigh in on that. Certainly people did, uh, on Facebook, but, uh, I would like to know, uh, is my, am I looking at this the wrong way? Uh, am I trying to extrapolate larger things from this, uh, from this small article. Uh, I say you just, uh, throw that guy's site in the trash <laughs> along with his. DVDs. I mean, if they're so minimalist, what do we need another website for? You know? <laughs> Come on guys. That's true. Um, all right. Um, I'm not going to go through everything on the website. There's too much going all, all the way back, but we still got Sarah still working through the, uh, the, the top 100. She, uh, was disappointingly not a big fan of, uh, Ron, the, uh, R a N right. Do you say Ron? It's Ron, right? I think it's Ron. Yeah. Um, which I always feel like whenever that I love, we pronounce it like a H sound. It's just like us assuming that in other countries people pronounce it in like this more refined way, but I think that it's correct. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just being like, Carrie, Carrie Grant or Kevin Hepburn, yeah, like totally. putting a mid Atlantic accent. Ron, my, she was, yeah. <laughs> um, 
uh, let's see, um, uh, West uh, looked at musical no- uh, over a musical 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 notation. God damn it! Um, <laughs> revisited the Danny Elfman Tim Burton uh, collaboration um, for ten- for Danny Elfman and Tim Burton Part Two. I reviewed a ghost story. Um, spoilers, I loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a spoiler, because I already said it's yeah. my favorite movie of the year. Uh, all that stuff is on there. But, but what I really want to tell you guys about, those of you who are coming down to San Diego for uh, San Diego San Diego Comic-Con International, um, we will be once again doing our meetup. It'll be us, that's me and Tyler, uh, with Ryan from Criterion Cast and with um, some one or two people from Warner Archive mm-hmm. who will have some free DVDs to give away. I've already talked to Matt to confirm. He'll have no some, Blu-rays? I don't uh, want them. He might have some Blu-rays. Hey, all right. Um, he's been having Blu-rays at those things. So uh, yeah, he has. Um, uh, so you can, yeah, you, you will all be uh, meeting up. You can get some Blu-rays and you can get some free drinks. Uh, we're looking at 8 to 10 p.m. at the Bootlegger. Uh, free drinks uh, brought to you by Filmstruck. Uh, thanks Filmstruck for coming through for us the second year in a row sponsoring yeah. our meetup and letting people drink beer at the bootlegger uh, for free if you're going to get food you're going to pay for it yourself uh, come on uh, Filmstruck you know how much money can you really make showing you know classic uh, anyway <laughs> uh, they do have good a, chicken strips there also, uh, I'll tell they, you got, they, they got great burgers I like the bootlegger a lot uh, it's been our venue three years running now um, for our meetup we really like it um, I don't have the address in front of me but like I said on the movie journal you have a smartphone you can look you can find out where the bootlegger is uh 8 to 10 p.m on thursday july 20th all right did i already say let's get into it shall we probably let's get into it shall we okay uh this was a topic that we have teased before um because i know that it's a topic that is close to scott's heart so mm-hmm. i knew we needed we needed scott on and it's something that i've um uh in some ways rethought the way that I've thought about certain movies because of things that Scott has said. Um, it hasn't changed my mind on any particular movies, but changed my mind on why I dislike them. Um, and then it came to a head, uh, a few at this point over a month ago, um, or maybe yeah, two months ago, no, over a month ago, uh, when I caught up with the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, and um, one of the biggest complaints, especially about the third one, uh, is how convoluted the story is and how hard it is to follow and that it doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, and I was watching the movie kind of going like, yeah, I see where people are coming from, but I don't care at all. Like this isn't that isn't the selling point of the movie for me is my ability to, you know, uh, chart it like uh, <laughs> like Claire Danes and Home- Homeland uh, on the wall. Um, I don't need to be necessarily make sense of everything that that happens. Um, uh, and so we wanted to talk about how important is it for a movie, a movie's plot or a movie's character decisions or whatever to make sense, to be plausible. Uh, and Scott, since this is a, a pet theme of yours, why don't you give your thoughts? Um, well, I'm sure they'll be unfolding throughout the episode, but uh, essentially it all comes from the fact that I am awful at following plots in movies. If I were the kind of monster who talked during movies, I would constantly asking my fiance, wait, why did he do that? What just happened? (laughs) Uh, Because I I, I can't follow anything but the simplest storyline. LA Confidential, actually, I remember watching like three times, never understanding a single thing that was going on when I was a teenager, but still really enjoying it because the performances and Mm -hmm. the way the story's told is so engaging. Like, you don't need to know every little beat to appreciate good storytelling, I guess. Have you seen Um, The Lady from Shanghai? 
Yes. That's also, that's a really difficult one. Yeah. yeah I, I, no idea. I think I get it. But like, <laughs> and then the big sleep of course is a classic one that doesn't, that, that has a yeah, plot hole in it. Another one around the same time where yeah. I saw that when I was like 16 or 17, because in the special features for uh, Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino mentioned how much she liked Howard Hawks and it happened to the big sleep happened to be playing at uh, cinema 21 in Portland. And so I was like, I'll see how Howard, Howard Hawks guy is. And it was like a hot August night in a theater with no air conditioning. And I was sitting in the balcony. So I was like, I'm probably just overheated. <laughs> That's why I don't understand this movie. But then I read up later that it literally doesn't make sense. But why would you possibly care about that when you're in the midst of such an incredible movie as The Big Sleep? Um, and that's kind of carried me the rest of the way. It's like, ultimately, all this other stuff is just in service of the film. And the film can be anything it wants to be. And the plot is such a tiny element of that. And even character motivations, you know, characters aren't there to express themselves. They're there to express the movie. And that can be achieved any number of ways. Uh, and now I'll say for Tyler, just because I want to address that immediately mm-hmm. um, in that um, I kind of agree with you, but I think it is a movie by movie basis. Some movies are telling you their plots mm-hmm. make sense. You know, if you're watching the Spanish prisoner and it doesn't make sense, then David Mamet has failed because that's what he's trying to do is to build this puzzle of a movie. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I've never seen the Spanish prisoner, but, <laughs> but you know, like I know you a mean. heist movie yeah, or a right. con man movie generally needs to make sense because it keeps insisting that it does. Um, eventually. Uh, yes. right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I think it's, uh, it's situational. I've come around to your side on a lot of movies. Um, but I do think it's, uh, there are some movies where it does need to make sense. Tyler. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, first off in talking about this, it's inevitable that the first, genre we discuss is film noir because film noir is like the essence of who gives a shit about story (laughs) because the characters first off the style of in which the films are made is just so engrossing but also the characters are usually so colorful that they just carry you through and and if the filmmaker has done his job well then the protagonist has a sense of what's going on and that's good enough for me. I'm just watching him or the supporting characters, whatever it is. Um, you know, I remember when I first saw Maltese Falcon, uh, and that has a convoluted plot. They all do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being like, I, it, it was maybe the first instance cause I was fairly young. It was probably the first instance of me saying like, I'm not really sure what's going on, but boy, I like Sidney Green. I didn't say Sidney Green. But like, <laughs> I like this Casper Gutman and I like Joel Cairo and oh my gosh, this, the way they talk is so fascinating. It, I was just, I was engrossed by all the, all the, all these other elements of the film. And, uh, and so as, but as time has gone on because, um, because I, I, uh, f- for a long time approached film from a, from a, often a character dialogue story standpoint. Um, and often my favorite movies are Excel in those areas, even if the visual style isn't remarkably interesting. Um, but what I will say is that as time has gone on, uh, usually because I'm kind of, uh, an asshole, <laughs> I will say that, uh, I get resistant whenever uh, really whatever if there's a consensus in the room that a certain thing is important i will usually see the other side uh sometimes out of my own personal pride um and other times because it's like 
a lot of people are speaking very definitively. And so I'll say that the more I have gotten into uh, the world of Christian film, whether uh, specifically audiences, there's such an emphasis, yes, on theme, but also on story. And and over and over again, even people that say that, that acknowledge that Christian film needs to get better, which obviously it does, but they say like, it's, it's, you got to think about the story. People want to see a story. And I was like, yes, I guess people do want that. But let's not forget that you could also have a great story that is cut together mm-hmm, terribly right. and is shot and is shot out of focus. <laughs> uh, and it's and it's going to be bad. Like in the end, you know, a thing that I've said for for a while is that with each new artistic medium, you have to look at, well, what makes it different? What makes it unique mm-hmm. and what makes film unique from other uh, from previous uh, artistic mediums, media, whatever, media. um, is that the, the, the camera moves and the pictures move, but then also through editing, you can, you can put them together and juxtapose right. them in a way that, that creates meaning. And that's, and so character and story are not unique to film. And so I feel like if you're, if you, I feel like the best movies are the ones that often have a good story and often have good characters, but also understand how vital it is to shoot it in a way that is serving whatever purpose the director wants to serve and cuts it together in that way. Um, An example I've been using a lot lately is Moonlight, which is that story and those characters do not require that that film be shot as well as it is mm. and it doesn't require such a such a remarkable use of color but the director opted to do that and oddly enough i think that it is not distracting i think he is steering into that and it's a prime example to me of what you can do how you can use these other elements to enhance story while ultimately making the film about all of these things, not just story and character. So I think my view has started to evolve a little bit, mostly from the insistence of certain people that it's all about story. I think mine Uh, followed similar track where there was a sort of, especially an online contingent of film fans who were very insistent on story and characters, all about the story. And I think that kind of came to a head in kind of the heyday of Pixar, which is why I ended up kind of souring on their whole aesthetic because it's so Pixar's films are so responsible. There's no room to imagine or let breathe various elements that could be at all distracting from, you know, the notion that it all has to move towards a very distinct head. Mm. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I just don't want all movies to be like that. No, that's fair enough. But I, I, I like Pixar movies. Well, I like some. I like a handful of them. I yeah. like them while I'm watching them, but I so rarely think about them afterwards, I guess, because there's no space for me to think about them. It's all like it's, out. like it's wrapped up. Yeah, it's all yeah. contained. It's all there. I think about Finding Nemo and The Incredibles and Toy Story 3 <laughs> quite a lot. Those, those, those three especially. And I do actually like... I have a, a great deal of respect for Wally, but I do think The Incredibles is one, and I think it shows that Brad Bird, as a director, is bigger than Pixar and, and is able uh, to transcend that with his storytelling, but also the way the film is put together. It feels... It doesn't feel limited to me. It feels like he's absolutely exploring the limits of animation. Um, and so, and also, I guess maybe that's a script issue as well, because there's some thematic stuff that I feel like is not wrapped up um, the way a lot of family films often are. 
And maybe it's because they're family films. It's like, well, we want the kids to be able to understand everything that's going on. Yeah, I think I was looking up some Richard Brody articles for this episode, and he mentioned with Pixar especially that there's a notion in which they're teaching you to watch their movies and teaching kids to think yeah. in a very Pixar way. Sure. That's what they're doing. Yeah. They're, they're teaching kids, not catering to kids. I think that we have a tendency to think kids are capable of a lot less, mm-hmm. uh, than, than they are. You know, I think they, they have, they're more malleable and have bigger imaginations than we do. So we don't need to keep, we don't need to tell them pat stories. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So we don't need Pixar. Uh, <laughs> we don't just need Pixar. It's kind of like to get off of movies. This is something my, my wife was telling me about that she read um, that uh, uh, the 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 blandness of baby food is kind of like a solely American thing that we have hmm. this idea that like oh babies can't handle uh, spicy foods and it's like no they can't chew but in a lot of other I guess a lot of other parts of the world you just like blend up the same thing you're having for dinner and then mm, they, oh. they eat it. There's no, there's no reason they can't uh, have spicier food. See here, it's just like, all right, we've either got baby food or uh, spicy Doritos. <laughs> That's it. Those are our options. Um, uh, but I, uh, a couple, I'm trying to think what, what thing I want to say first. I'll start with this. Um, something that I really hate uh, uh, and this is, I think comes from the studio mentality if it has to make sense is when something is clearly like, um, a fix to make something make more sense. And it ends up just standing out. Um, I wrote an article about this actually for Roger several years ago. Really? I would love to read that because a I character will occasionally just mention something offhand or like right. ask a question and about something that just happened. Like, how did that make sense? And then Carol will be like, well, it's because of the such and such. Um, and I remember the, reading that yeah. on Roger Ebert, not battleship retention.com. It's fine. Um, well, I'm sure <laughs> he's actually got... commissioned by yeah. Matt. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, what the ones that really bother me is when it's ADR, when they're yeah. not even, Oh boy. Um, and as much as I, well, you'll, you've heard me on the movie journal talk about how I mostly really kind of really enjoyed baby driver. Um, it has a really egregious one. Uh, did you see, you saw I did, it? Yeah. Baby driver? So there's a, me. there's a part in the movie. There's a scene in the movie where there's an arms deal in the middle of the night and these are bank robbers. There's actually no reason they need to be present at an arms deal in the middle of the night. Right. And apparently someone at the studio must have thought of that because there's a part where as they're pulling in, uh, John Hamm and Jamie Foxx are having a conversation that's entirely ADR. It's like four <laughs> lines of dialogue. It was so egregious to me uh, that I was like, oh, I guess they needed to explain why they're here in the middle of the night. Um, whereas I probably would have thought less about it. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, I, I probably still would have thought, I don't know why they're here, but it's a good scene on its own. The arms deal scene. It's got Paul Williams in it. Uh, it does have Paul Williams in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, so that, uh, that's something that really bothers me. The, the explanation, the ADR explanation that's clearly that, that reads as a studio note. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is why that ADR exposition joke in they came together is my favorite joke <laughs> in any movie of the last 10 years. Um, uh, I, I, any thoughts? Any thoughts about that? Oh, you wrote a whole article about it. Yeah, I guess go read that article. I mean, it was several years ago. I don't remember all that I said, but it is—it's just something I noticed more and more. Where, yeah, you could tell that somebody wrote a note either in the script development or in the final stages of making the movie, yeah. where they're like, "This doesn't quite make sense to me, who's seen the movie dozens of times. It surely won't make sense to someone who's watching the movie once. So right. we must paper over it." Well, it's it's interesting because there's that concept of hanging a lantern on it, mm-hmm. but you can do that in two different ways. One is, all right, there's a thing we know doesn't make sense. So what we'll do is we'll 
call attention to that fact and actually it somehow becomes more forgivable. But sometimes by trying to fix it, you hang a lantern on it there as well. And then people are like, Hmm, that's obviously (laughs) you trying to fix it, which makes you, like you said, David, like so much more aware that this doesn't make sense. Yeah. And if, I mean, I think the better way to do it is through, uh, like, like David Copperfield, not the, uh, Charles Dickens character, but the magician through distraction. Right. I thought thought the Dickens character was a magician. (laughs) I actually had, don't know. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Uh, no, I'm, I'm right. joking. Of course, it's okay. Uh, yeah, no. I have no idea about David Copperfield. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know much about Charles Dickens. I like Great Expectations, I guess. But I never actually read it. I just like all the adaptations. <laughs> I've seen. I don't know if I've read any Charles Dickens. I think about it. You've heard, heard a Christmas Carol? I read a Christmas Carol. That's I, good. I might have read it. I don't remember. Um, Sorry, I interrupted to make a joke that I guess didn't. Because well, I'm that's how I'm too dumb. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I only know. I, I read. I read comic books. I don't read book books um um that's oh, lately that's actually true um i'll get back i got a whole i have a whole stack of books that i need to sure. read um but uh the great a great example of this is um we've mentioned it earlier jurassic park uh where there's the scene where the t-rex comes out you you see the pen you see that it's a ground level yeah and then later in the sequence the car goes over and it's like at the top of this wall with this huge sheer drop off. Yeah. It doesn't make sense that that drop off wasn't there no. seven minutes previously. Uh, but you don't care in the moment because the movie's working. Yeah. I guarantee like how long did it take? I'm sure there are plenty of people that noticed the moment of, but how many of us grew up watching Jurassic park and it didn't occur to us for a while. And it's because it never moment, occurred to me until someone, until I read someone that read on the internet, I think. Yeah, I think it occurred to me after seeing it, I don't know, the 10th time or whatever. And then I thought like, wait a second. And then and then then it's hard not to think of that. But at the same time, when the T-Rex is, is, you know, when the when the T-Rex is attacking and then later when the car is about to fall over, my heart is pounding. That's all I care about. I just like, oh, no, Dr. Grant, you know, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I feel like Spielberg is maybe the best at this and just realizing yeah, it's fine. If something is out of if something's out of the frame you know, out of sight, out of mind for the most part. And just like, yeah, we had our moment where the T-Rex stepped from ground level out of the pen and to the, yeah. to the cars, but that's over now. Now it's time for the next thing. Um, I'm trying to remember speaking of masters, uh, Martin Scorsese, one of his commentaries, uh, maybe it's Goodfellas. I can't remember, but he's talking about, um, uh, emotional continuity. Cause he's, Right. He makes me people tend to be smoking and drinking a lot. So if you're paying attention, you will notice the level of the drinks or the length of the it cigarette goes all over the place. Uh, mm-hmm. But he, he, but he insists on emotional continuity and then you don't notice yeah. because There's of that quote that's attributed to Thelma Schumacher, his editor that I don't know if it's real, but I pray it is where she says match cutting is for pussies, <laughs> 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 which is kind of my uh, cinematic philosophy. Uh, we've been mostly talking about like these kind of like, IMDb goofs and continuity errors and stuff, but I think it's equally interesting to talk about very purposeful uh, implausibility where there's like some element that's completely baked into the story and it is not going anywhere that might read as implausible if you think about it or might read as implausible right away. Uh, the two kind of mirror examples I thought of because they're both completely ridiculous, but one works and the other completely doesn't. Is did you guys see the movie Focus with Will Smith from a couple of years ago? Yes. No, I saw the movie Focus with William H Macy and Laura Dern. Doesn't matter. I saw um, that one as well. They're <laughs> they're shockingly similar. <laughs> <laughs> so Tyler, you might remember there's the big scene in the middle of Focus where they 
managed to get some business guy to bet on a certain football player because of the number. And then they played by uh, BD Wong. Yes. That's actually, I really like that scene. Really? Yeah. <laughs> because they flash back and it turns out. I mean, the, is the businessman played by BD Wong or the football player? Uh, businessman. <laughs> I'm sorry, David. All yes. right. I guess that's okay. I like that scene actually maybe because of BD Wong. I really like what he's doing. Yeah, it's a well-acted scene, but the explanation for why they're able to pull off is insane. It turns out they've been like subliminally inserting these numbers into the guy's head for days in terms of like humming songs that have a rhythm that in like Chinese culture equal the number five mm. and like putting fives and chandeliers near him. And it's completely insane. And the movie... <laughs> takes no delight in its insanity it's just presented as like this cool idea that screenwriter thought up like as a uh-huh. David Mamet level reveal but it's mm. not it's just dumb and ridiculous yeah uh but the other end of that is something like the end of old boy where the plan is revealed oh, which i won't give away yeah okay for those you. who haven't seen old boy sorry but the final reveal of what's been going on in the whole movie is equally insane but park chan wook has taken so much delight in its insanity right. yeah. that it kind of becomes super charming yeah, uh, I don't know that I'd use the word charming. Well, I find I mean, it very upsetting from a <laughs> perverse point of yeah, view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it made me think of that uh, Truffaut quote, where he, ironically, given that his films do neither of these things, uh, where he said he demands the film express either the joy of making cinema or the agony of making cinema. He says, "I'm not interested in anything in between. I'm not interested in all those films that do not pulse." Uh, and to me, Park Chan Wook's film is like it's just emanating with that joy of telling this ridiculous story. Yeah. Whereas a movie like focus is just like bathing in its own sense of cool, which is so misplaced. And yeah. Well, um, and, uh, oh. so actually I'm going to defend focus a little bit okay. because <laughs> if some, like, while I do think that, you know, things, it is a, it's a con man movie, so it does need to make a certain degree of sense and things really start to fall apart there at the end. But what I will say is that, Cool can be a tone just as much as anything else. Um, yeah, but their plan and, isn't cool. Oh, <laughs> uh, but I and, and but there's something about like this reveal and people. Be, essentially, any con man movie is. Oh, we actually were in charge the whole time, and we don't leave right. anything to chance. And so that reveal is always going to be cool. It's always going to be like, oh my gosh, we, they got me too. I guess or whatever. Um, and so along those lines, like yeah, that plan that plan is is silly in a lot of ways, but. Um, but I think it plays into certain genre, uh, certainly the genre expectation, and I think it plays tonally into what the film is is trying to do, and for the most part, does do. That's um, more, that last part's more of a question mark. But, <laughs> but, but I think the uh, question, not having seen the movie, right. but this kind of ties into what I was saying about David Mamet and Spanish Prisoner, those kind of movies, is that if a movie is setting you up, like you know the whole time, all right, there's going to be an explanation. So it, it, in this point, it isn't the question of does it do that or not? It's, is that explanation satisfying? Yeah, totally. And um, I think there's no question that it was going to do something like that. So the something sure. has to be engaging. And I think it's, and, and that's the thing is I think it is engaging. I don't know if it makes any sense, <laughs> but it's engaging. The idea of subliminally, like the idea of essentially what it is, is, Oh, we've been conning this guy from the moment so much earlier than this scene. And that's the ultimate reveal. Never mind how they're doing it. It's how long they've been in control. Whereas Margot Robbie's character thinks that this only started happening now. And so the specific details, uh, I think aren't as important as the larger truth that it's expressing. Uh, truth sound, it sounds a lot loftier, loftier when I say that, but, and so along those lines, like it, and to speak to what we're talking about, 
it doesn't make a great deal of sense. The specifics don't make a great deal of sense, but the overall reveal does make sense with these characters in this story. And so it actually doesn't bother me that it doesn't make a great deal of sense. And BD Wong is also great. Um, uh, and I got to see Focus, apparently. No. Uh, <laughs> I, hang on. I, don't, I wouldn't say that. Um, Although uh, Will Smith, charming as hell, of course. Uh, as well, always. Um, but I at least, hearing the story, I at least respect it for giving an explanation because one of my, this is going into the realm of TV, you know I love Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. But did you watch Breaking Bad, yeah. Scott? The, the end of the second season? Uh, no, I'm talking about the end of, I want to say the fourth season, the reveal of that Brock was poisoned with the Lily uh, Valley yeah. plant. Yeah. It never g- actually gives you, it just gives you the shot of the plant. And I, I, I was like, okay, season five has to start with like explaining how the poison got from that plant into this young boy. <laughs> like, and it, it just like, it never, that's, that's something that still bothers me because it's very dishonest to be a show like Breaking Bad where everything uh, has... Uh, very process-oriented. Yes, yeah. and everything has consequences. Well, and the character to, is a scientist. Yeah, to just present that and say, eh, that's explanation enough. That still uh, still sticks in my craw. Would you say it haunts you, David? No, no, I said it sticks in my craw. Okay. That's, the, that's the, <laughs> the metaphor I'm going with. Okay, got it. I still say the end of the second season is far worse. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the that's... The reveal of the plane collision is just the dumbest payoff I, I agree it's dumb. I guess I'm bothered by the one more, but we're, we're arguing by matters of degree at this point now because yeah. I don't like that either. Um, I still really like Breaking Bad, I have to say. Uh, I think it's a very good show. Um, you know, it has a, the, the third season premiere, which just starts with that inexplicable, just like people crawling up a mountain to an altar. That's it's a good like, one. It's very yeah. like Fellini. Uh, I love that so much. Um, anyway, what else? Okay. I would, the other thing I wanted to get to, Scott. Yeah. Because I wanted to go back to the root of this for me. The root, the 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 point when your argument actually broke through <laughs> to uh, my my uh, self. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Self satisfied uh, armor um, was when you were t- when we were talking about Prometheus, right? Which um, at that point I must not have even known you very long because that was like five or six. When did we come out? Twenty twelve. Well, I think we talked about more recently than that. Okay. Um, because a lot of people have problems with Prometheus and they point out like how dumb it is that these scientists are not using scientific precautions or the thing that I'm always like, uh, running in a straight line from a thing that's rolling (laughs) after you, like just run to one side or the other. The thing's not that wide. You'll be out of the path of this thing in, in, in the space of 10 steps. Um, and that I, and I used to, because I did, I didn't like Prometheus and I still don't like Prometheus. I used to join in the chorus of that. Um, but, uh, I think you got me to realize uh, because you like Prometheus. I love it. Um, you got me to realize that that's, those things aren't my problem with the movie because the fact of all these other things we've talked about that don't make sense that I don't care. Like if those are my problem, then why wouldn't be my problem with all these other movies? My problem is that I wasn't sold on Prometheus. I wasn't, invested i wasn't involved and be, and so because i remained ever at a distance from it i couldn't help but notice all right. of these things so now when i have that kind of problem with a movie i don't waste time pointing that out 
uh, lest I become one of the makers of the everything wrong with videos, <laughs> which is the, ex- the, the, it's the extreme awfulness yeah. of what I'm talking about. I hate here. those. And so I thank you, Scott, so not much. you, you didn't make me like Prometheus, <laughs> but you didn't make me see the light and not become an everything no, wrong. Glad wrong I won the war, if not the battle. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's something that when, uh, the last Indiana Jones movie came out, I think it was either Matt Zilger sites or Keith Ulick termed them, you know, things you don't like when you already don't like the movie. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah. so ever since then I've totally taken that tack and I mean, while plausibility issues rarely raise their head to me cause I don't care for the most part, but you know, I, I think you tend to it, always looking deeper, I think into a movie is a good idea. And anything that's on the surface is probably indicative of some, uh, more foundational flaw. Absolutely. I feel like one, th- one thing that, uh, we should talk about is character motivation and character action and the way that plays into this conversation because um you know the older i get the more i am willing to forgive in a movie when it comes to characters doing contradictory things because i I realize like oh right people are actually quite contradictory and you know people don't act uh even even when you're talking with your friends about movies and they say oh i really like that movie you're like what right (laughs) everything i know about you suggests that you would not like that movie um and so, you know, it's just going to happen. So, uh, as I've gotten older, I've become a bit uh, much more forgiving about, uh, of that. But I will say that with two dimensional characters, chances are they are defined by one or maybe two traits if you're lucky. And as a result there, if there is no character complexity, um, you know, established character complexity, then I would say I'm less forgiving of that. Let's go back to Jurassic Park. Um, <laughs> uh, so, and we talked about this, I think, a few weeks ago on the Movie Journal, which is um, I don't care about like the 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 T Rex paddock element, um, but what I will say is that uh, Muldoon's death does bother me. This is a character defined by one thing. Raptors. He knows all about them. He's seen, he's observed them. Uh, he is also, by the way, a professional hunter for his entire life. And he knows everything about Raptors based on their behavior. But as it turns out, the guy who studies their bones knows more about their hunting, uh, uh, capabilities than the professional hunter who's been observing them. And so that moment went the clever girl moment where it gets him, it comes out at him from the side. I do not believe that the Robert Muldoon character who again has been established as one thing Raptors that he would let himself be put in that position. Now, if he were expecting it and still, and still, uh, was killed, I'd be more okay with that. I don't have a problem with him dying and even dying at the hands of Raptors, but I don't see him putting himself in that position. And I um, have always disagreed with you on this because I read the scene differently. I think he absolutely knows how they hunt. I think in the moment he let his guard down and that clever girl is him, uh, um, acknowledging that to me, that's, that's how I've always read it is, is, is that he, um, he, he, he fouled up uh, at the worst possible moment because of the intensity of the situation and because they're Raptors and they're not in the cage at this point, they're actually out loose and he forgot the thing that you're and therein, not supposed to forget. And therein lay for me, the issue of character complexity. I don't think he's a complex enough character to actually misstep. He is defined by his efficiency and his hmm. 
con- and his perpetual knowledge of raptors. Well, I'll once again, suggest we go deeper and say that maybe just the scene would be more interesting if he saw that coming and there'd be more twists and turns to it. There's that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's one of the reasons cause he's, so, uh, listeners know because of the, uh, movie journal, although at time of recording, David doesn't know this. Um, <laughs> I unsurprisingly rewatched jaws on the 4th of July. Jen and I went and saw it in the theater. And so of course I've got Quint on my mind as I often do. Um, and so Muldoon is very similar to Quint, but with Quint, I mean, that is a remarkably complex character, even if his motivations are very simple, <laughs> which is, well, this terrible thing happened to me when I was younger and I've decided to devote my entire life to taking it out on an entire species. Um, but you see how obsessive he can get, how prideful he can get. And within that, he makes tons of mistakes, but he also knows his job. So it's like, well, how, if he knows his job so well, how can he make so many mistakes? And it's like, because you see how defined he is by this thing and how that can drive a person crazy. That's the kind of character complexity I'm talking about in the great white hunter type of character that you don't see in Robert Muldoon. And so if they had, if they'd carried that out, because to me, if it's a guy who knows what's coming and he still dies, that I think speaks more to the raptors, the, the lethality. Hmm of raptors. And so I approve, but, (laughs) but so like, like that's an example of, of I'm, I don't actually, it takes me, it's a good scene, obviously. And clever girl is a a nice moment, but, uh, but it it takes me out of the, out of the movie. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I think that's part of the reason why I never bothered by the character stuff in Prometheus because it's, I don't want to watch the movie where they're making the right decisions. <laughs> like right. that's such a boring movie. It's so much more interesting to see people follow their impulses and curiosities and get into dangerous situations. Like, but I guess the difference is, uh, and we're all agree with Tyler on this, the, with the Prometheus characters, they're not following their impulses. They're, or at least what it feels like to me is that they're thinly drawn characters who are doing this, not because they're following their impulses, but because the script needs them to. I'd say that's about right. And that's, that's probably, that's, I think why it, it turns me off because it, I I can see the screenwriter's hand. It might as well be the screenwriter reaching out into that goo, uh, (laughs) in Prometheus. Yeah. But in, in some regards, I agree with you. There's the, I think geologist or not geologist, but there's somebody who's in charge of mapping who doesn't know his way around the caves that he's mapped, Um, Uh which is just dumb. But I mean, the guy reaching out to the little animal, that's what he's there to do. That's like the entire reason he came on that journey. And you know what? That scene used to bother me a lot more than it does now Mm -hmm. because the one character trait that he was set up as was self-preservation right before. Mm. And so now it's like, Hey, here's this thing that is not acting, actually acting that friendly. Um, and he reaches out and is smiling and saying it's beautiful. And so it's just like that to me, I will chalk that up to, the contradictory nature of people, which is like, I'll take care of myself. But at the same time, I am a scientist and this is new and that's exciting. It is beautiful, even if it is a monster. Um, and so that scene doesn't actually bother me as much as, as it used to. Um, but yeah, but at the same time, like it's tough because Prometheus is so not a character movie, uh, except with David and with, uh, What's her guts? Newberry Reprise's character, I think, is really Shaw, well drawn. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think the two of them work out the the best. And I think that they are the ones who when I say consistent characters, um, I don't necessarily mean they do they're just all the way down the line, they always make these right decisions. Uh, or they always make characters that 
decisions that fit with what they've been established as. Um, but I feel like, yeah, they're, they're complex enough characters that when they do something that we would say is wrong or dumb right. or, or whatever you want to say, I feel like it, it doesn't bother me. It makes, it makes a certain degree of sense. But the other characters, I feel like it just are not well drawn enough that yes, I think they are just, as David said, I think they're just instruments of the, of the writer to move things along. And maybe it came from, I mean, I know you guys love lost too, which was also written by David Lindelof as was Prometheus, but it's the same sort of impulse where everything else he's doing emotionally is so interesting that I don't care that the characters make ridiculous decisions to move the plot along. Yeah. There are so many parts in lost that are insane, but well, the, the, I never cared. The classic uh, can complain about lost that I see is like, if, like in any given situation, if they asked two more questions of one another <laughs> right. and just explained themselves fully, yeah. um, this would all be resolved. That's that's like Robert uh, Roger Ebert's uh, thing about. Um, oh no, it's Jimmy Pardo who said that. Like when it, whenever he watches, like, I was getting confused too. They're uh, <laughs> both from Chicago, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, Jimmy Pardo would say. Uh, in like a romantic comedy, it bothers him when like this whole story would be fixed with a post-it note that just says, Hey, I, I went here. I'll see you later. Oh yeah. Well, I, yeah, I hate the, 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 um, uh, the, the screenplay thing of, um, well, we need a third act falling out. Yeah. So let's have a, right. Um, this person's going to overhear something the right. other person's saying they're going to misconstrue it and they're not going to talk or they'll walk away pages. before the sense. Is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're like, well, I've heard enough. Yeah. Or like for some reason, Mighty Ducks is leaving, leaving to mind. Like <laughs> Gordon's going to say something sarcastically, but right. what's his name doesn't get uh, that it's sarcasm. But then later, when he when Gordon says, "Haven't you ever heard of sarcasm?" He says, "No," which is which I thought was the height of comedy when I was a kid. <laughs> um, uh, 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 this is uh, another one that I. Um, here's an example of a character doing something that is motivated by the. Uh, just the necessities of the screenplay or just the, the scene, but that I like, um, which is, um, uh, deep blue sea. Okay. Samuel okay. Jackson's death. Right. Everyone, if you haven't seen the movie, you know how Samuel Jackson dies in yeah. deep blue it's sea. The one part I've seen that movie. <laughs> yeah. There's no, he's giving the speech. There's no reason for him to walk right halfway down <laughs> yeah. that plank, except for a shark to jump out. And yeah. even though they, he's so good in the scene. And even though, you know, it, it, like it doesn't bother me that much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I uh, so I saw that movie opening day, uh -huh. uh, and so it was not well known. Though I, I'll say this, even though I was uh, still younger, I think I was a savvy enough moviegoer that I'm like, hmm, it's awfully close to that water. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem necessary. Oh, yeah. uh, but I mean, it like people flipped out in the theater when yeah. that happened. They were very much not expecting it. You know, and I don't think I was expecting it to happen that abruptly. Um, or for that yeah. specific thing to happen because it's yeah. like, it's not an action a shark could even perform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, oh, but these are super sharks. They can swim backwards. I forgot. Um, another one, this is not nearly as famous, but that actually works, but I, I happened to rewatch, uh, I didn't talk about the movie journal or maybe I did. I don't know. Cause we haven't finished it yet. Um, <laughs> peek behind the curtain. Yeah. Um, I rewatched Shaun of the dead after I saw baby driver. Cause I was just in an Edgar Wright mm -hmm. move and mood and the character, David, who he dies because he's standing by the window right. at the moment, the zombies break through. And I didn't remember like it's, uh, it happens very subtly him getting in front of the window. It's not an obvious thing because he tries to go to the door and then Lucy Davis's character is like, get away from the door. And that's yeah. how he ends up standing in front of the window. It's that, yeah. that's a very nice uh, and well thought out. There's yeah. Usually Edgar Wright's movies are pretty well thought out, uh, which is maybe why that, 
arm steel and baby drivers <laughs> sticks out. Hmm. Uh, There's a few me. things of baby driver that aren't that well thought out. Um, I still haven't seen it. Well, we'll talk about it on the, we have talked about it on the movie <laughs> journal. Okay. Well done. Um, anyway, uh, anybody else have any thoughts on this subject? Oh, I, I have a few I want to at least run through. Okay. Um, well, I, wanna, I, I, wanna, I do want to mention, then I'll let you go. Um, we haven't mentioned one of the most famous things, which is that there's no one close enough to Kane to hear him say Rosebud. Right. And yet everyone knows those, that was the last thing he said, but no one cares. I'm willing to put that down to like, there are butlers everywhere. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm fine. See, that's like not, cavernous room sound carries. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I see that's not valid. Like, um, I, let's, we'll keep talking about Roger Ebert. This episode is dedicated to Roger Ebert, yeah. I guess. Um, but he talked about, um, the end of being there. And Chauncey just uh, spoilers for the very end of being there. <laughs> Chauncey it's on the cover of every DVD um, release, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, walking on water at, at the end, uh, and he was teaching it in the class. Uh, I'm thinking maybe at our school because I know he used to teach yeah, sometimes yeah. at our school. Um, and he asked the class like, "What uh, happened there?" And some po- people said like, "Well, maybe there was a sandbar under the water." And Roger Ebert's like, that's not valid because that's not right. You're not given anything to, right. to, to, to unlock the that. text as they would uh, say. Yeah. And so that's how I feel about your Butler thing. Like we don't see a Butler. Um, we do see, I'll say this, not in that scene, but, uh, as, as Kane is like walking through the hallways and we see Raymond, the Butler, like standing and watching. So the yeah. idea of the Butler seeing okay. is established. So I'm, and he does say, he's like, he goes, he always said things that don't mean anything like that other thing. Like he's just, that's <laughs> one of the things I like about that. I've come to like about that is just how shitty Raymond is as a person. He just doesn't care at all. But anyway, sorry. Um, okay. Sorry. So I'll, uh, uh, I wanted to mention citizen Kane Scott. Yeah. Well, I also wanted to mention plots that are overly contrived because there's sort of a filmmaker God's eye view of the whole scene. Um, and I know, David, you are also a fan of Jacques Demy, uh-huh. whose films are very, especially the early stuff in the 60s, are very like built on coincidence and contrivance. And in many ways, it doesn't make sense that the characters would continually be meeting up. But because that's sort of the clockwork of the film, that's sort of the rhythm of it, is these characters will keep running into each other. It works. Yeah. 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 Um, I think, have you seen, like, oh. have you seen Lola? Uh, I haven't, no. Okay. Well, you should see Lola because it's a wonderful film. But it, it, that movie ends with the character coming out of nowhere to basically rescue the whole movie. Um, and it, it totally works for some reason. Cause that's the story. That he's yeah, exactly. Telling. Kind of what I was going to say is kind of like how everyone in the star Wars universe, uh, non rogue one, at least is related to one another. Right. Um, it's this, it's the entire, entire galaxy <laughs> worth, worth of rebel and empirical forces. And everyone who's a major player managed to have some blood relation to someone right. else. Um, but that doesn't matter because that's the story that you're that you're being told. And to keep on the tack of French filmmakers, as I've been going through the films of Eric Romero for the website, almost all of his films are built on a character encountering someone at just the right time that will set their life on a completely different course. And that's kind of like the one of the points he's making with his movies is how differently our lives can be led based on chance encounters. Um, but, you know, they don't read as chance encounters. They read very much as like the filmmaker imposing his will on the film, but that's fine too. You know, it's a common tack in short stories. Certainly. I have nothing to say. Nothing to say. (laughs) Uh, the other couple things I wanted to run by is early silent cinema that especially comedies rely a great deal on implausibility, but the implausibility is so delightful. Like, uh, I was rewatching a bit of speedy, uh, earlier today and have you guys seen speedy? Yeah. Um, so there's the part in the end where he's, he's driving the, 
what is it like a carriage or a bus or something to the end of the city to keep his like a streetcar. Yeah. To keep, make sure his girlfriend's uh, dad can keep his contract or whatever mm-hmm. on the streetcar. Um, and along the way, he accidentally runs over what he thinks is a policeman at first and what ends up being a policeman dummy that he then uses to prop up and get past all the policemen on his route. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a completely ridiculous story beat, but it's so inventive and wonderful and delightful that it's like, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, in the, uh, the class that I was teaching, um, one thing, one of my favorite things to talk about uh, is the, the limits of the frame mm-hmm. um, and how it's just, it's literally a thing that we just don't think about like out of sight, out of mind, quite literally. Right. And I, I show a few examples, most notably speaking of silent comedy, uh, one week, um, with Buster Keaton where he and his, uh, his new bride are building a house, uh, all wrong. And then they need to transport it, uh, from one side of town to another. And so they're pushing it on these barrels and then it gets stuck on a train track and there's a train in the distance that's coming and they're like, Oh my gosh, this is terrifying. And then the train rushes by because it's actually on a parallel track and they're like, Oh, whew, thank God. But then a train comes from the other direction and just bash it. It just right. goes right through the house. And so what I tell the kids is like, well, they were able to see, officially, they'd be able to see both trains right? and they would be scared for both of them. So why is that? Why did this one take them by surprise? Well, because it was out of the frame. And so it literally didn't exist until the moment it did. And, you know, there are, there are multiple movies in which characters get hit by buses while standing in the, in the middle of the street. Yeah. Uh, and buses that are apparently doing 65 <laughs> yeah, exactly. like, city yeah. streets. Impossible um, to stop. <laughs> right. And it's, and it's this idea. And like, you know, we have peripheral vision and, <laughs> and ears. We will be able to tell if a bus is coming, but it's not in the frame. So it literally, it's not only that it's not coming. It's that it's, it doesn't exist until it shows up doing 60 and yeah. the bus driver is not paying attention. Yeah. Um, paying and, attention to honk the horn just <laughs> half a second yeah. before yeah. splattering something. Well, I guess I should warn this guy before I just demolish his body. Um, yeah. And so I feel like that's an example of stuff that doesn't make sense, but in the, uh, it officially doesn't make sense, but in the language of film, it makes complete sense to such a degree that I feel like people wouldn't even think about it. It's one of my favorite things to to talk about, and using that for uh, for comedic effect, as mentioned in uh, as I mentioned it with one week. But I showed a clip from uh, "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia," which and they've done it a couple of times where these care and it's from season two where these characters are having a a conversation with their father, and it's, he's saying like, "Oh, I'm divorcing your mother." And it's actually kind of funny, and uh, but it's big stuff going on, and the characters storm off and the camera pans over to these other two characters who are just sitting there like, well, that was awkward. Kind of a family moment. Shouldn't, (laughs) uh, should not have been there for that. And it's well, that's like, another, like, because I just watched it, that's the very opening of Shaun of the Dead, where you think that oh, Shaun yeah, yeah. and Liz are having yeah. the hard <laughs> conversation, and she said something about Ed, and then, it's not that I don't like you, Ed, and you realize Ed's standing <laughs> yeah. right there. Yeah, it's <laughs> hilarious, and it's, and it's, because and what it does is these other characters it recontextualizes everything you've just seen and it's this idea that well these characters if they're if it's so awkward they would probably get up and walk away or the family would never have had that uh-huh. argument in the first place but it's just like no 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 it's you're not supposed it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it's it's used as a comedic beat and that is why it makes sense i'm also willing to forgive a lot when it comes to comedy or in the case of 
uh, Shaun of the Dead, it tells you everything you need to know about those three characters yeah. in that one yeah. pan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen Shaun of the Dead in a long time. I know. I'm going to go home and rewatch it. Um, it's really great. Uh, can I tell you, uh, this is off topic, but um, uh, I reconfirmed why I am in love with uh, my wife because uh, uh, we, we had watched Baby Driver and she was going to go to bed and I was like, I was like, I, I might watch Shaun of the Dead and then I was like, I'm pretty tired. I might just throw it in and fast forward to when she was like, the don't stop me now part. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's exactly what that was. We are great minds. Nice. Uh, I also figured it's worth mentioning the guy who termed the, or coined the term, the plausibles, Albert Hitchcock, um, whose films, you know, I think rather famously are almost entirely, I, I mean, almost to a one built on some sort of implausibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I rewatched North by Northwest, to go back to the DVD conversation the other day, that's a film I bought seven years ago and haven't watched since I bought it. Felt like watching it again. Glad it was there. Yeah. Um, but nothing. No, I don't own sense. North by Northwest, but I have had Tyler's copy for more than half a year. <laughs> yeah. like opening it. Um, but that's a film that doesn't make sense at all. I mean, all the ways they try to kill Cary Grant are the most ridiculous, like contrived ways. <laughs> they send him halfway across the country on a bus to yeah. then try to run him over with a plane. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Why would you do that? Except it's great to watch Cary Grant yeah. dodge a plane. Yeah. Um, but and the, and the scene leading up to it where he's just standing there at that crossroads, completely exposed for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Oh yeah. No, it's a, that's why you do it because it's a great scene. And Hitchcock knew that the moments count more than uh, the general architecture, I guess. Um, so I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on Hitchcock in general in that regard. But. Well, rear window, we are not, I mean, obviously we're not meant to think about that. We're not meant to think about like Scotty is just, it's Scotty, right? Yeah. Wait, no, that's vertigo. It's Jeff. Yeah. Jeff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's sitting there and his window is wide open. Right. And he's pretty close to it. Uh, and so it's this idea. It's like, well, if he can see into other people's windows very easily, they can also see into his. But you're really not meant to think about that until may, until you are meant to right. think about that, until someone actually looks at him and at us. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's it's not that it's necessarily implausible, but it might be implausible in the sense that he it wouldn't occur to him um, and that no one would think to look in his window just as he's looking in theirs, especially since it's just standing wide open like that. Yeah. I mean, they make like a couple mentions that like they turn off the light sometimes when the sure, sure. gets too much where he yeah. rolls kind of back a little bit. But yeah. For the and, most part, you're right. Yeah. Right. But, and that's, that's late enough. That's yeah, like, totally. okay, the stakes are going up. And so now it's occurred, occurring to him, uh, and occurring to us at that same time. So I know when I spy on my neighbors, I'm always much more careful. <laughs> exactly. I, <laughs> that actually no, I, do you remember, not that we were spying, but do you remember we had a neighbor? across the way that we again we weren't spying it was just our our windows multiple windows of ours looked directly into his apartment. yeah and it's unfortunate that our tv was between those windows and so we could just sit on the couch looking at the tv and it's like oh hang on slightly to the right ever so slightly to the right there's a, a whole show going on in yes. the building next door well i can tell you the whole okay so he was uh uh a smallish man Right. Yeah. There's a lot going on with this story who clearly had a, uh, he was a gay man, uh, and clearly had, uh, a type, which you would call bears. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm going to go ahead and throw our other roommate on the bus for, uh, Cole for coming up with this nickname, yeah. but we started referring to our neighbor as Mowgli <laughs> <laughs> because he was with Baloo, the bear. but it was like, 
multiple different like yeah, yeah the, the show we got it when we looked like you said slightly to the right um was not always the same blue <laughs> that's true yeah it was just yes. the same Mowgli yeah uh and I think the situation was <laughs> we were sitting and watching tv and I believe I happened to spy something going on and I was like I, I felt terrible because like <laughs> I didn't go looking for this yeah. it found me yeah uh, and I believe I said so I guess our neighbor's gay. <laughs> and I remember you were like, we're like, why would you say that? I was like, well, cause it's, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, but that's the thing is they could have looked in and saw us. We didn't yeah, have blinds so, open. Yeah. It's not, losers yeah, watching it's not TV. very interesting. <laughs> so, so, uh, anyway, but, uh, yeah. And I'm sure, and there are other elements, I'm sure and uh, so many things going on in, um, uh, uh, notorious. Uh, there's, uh, there has to be a great deal of suspension of disbelief that th- these things would happen. But I guess that that's pretty standard for suspense that like right. oh, things didn't happen that, and it's a good thing they didn't because otherwise I would have been caught. Like it's a very, I feel like a lot of this can be traced to, or at least my forgiveness of it can be traced to genre like film noir. Like, yeah, I don't care if the plot doesn't make sense. And then, with suspense, it's, I I often feel like yeah I'm I'm more willing to accept coincidence because of the nature of of what the film is. Uh, same with comedy in that regard. Yeah, I mean, like the whole of suspicion is based on uh, essentially a misunderstanding that could easily be cleared up or with a post-it note, more or less. Okay, uh, I don't think that had been invented yet. Oh, that's, that's true. true. Uh, Romeo and Michelle had invented, <laughs> invented <laughs> post-it notes yet. Um, uh, do you have more on your list? Uh, uh, I, I guess the only other topic ish thing I wanted to mention is films that then twist this whole notion and are so obsessive in their detail that the obsessiveness is part of the text of the film as with David Fincher's better movies, you know, like Zodiac okay. and the social network are so relentlessly plausible, but they're also about like that obsessive attention to detail that it kind right. of, yeah, it all fits, you know? It, it, yeah. Because uh, so much of the way I watch and enjoy films is like a reflection of some artist's personality that is very much David Fincher's personality. Um, I'm glad you went positive with it because I was going to go the other way and talk <laughs> about Christopher Nolan. And he was and, on the other side of that coin for me. Uh, yeah, and um, Inception, Inception yeah. which is a movie that is yeah. so insistent that it makes sense that it literally has its characters stop every ten minutes, yeah, to and tell each other what's itself. going on, yeah. Which, as much as I like Interstellar, and I, I think I don't can't remember how you guys feel about Interstellar in general. I wasn't a fan. I like the, I like I, the I, Hans Zimmer score a lot, though. Yeah, I like it. Uh, and Matthew McConaughey is doing some really great work in there as well. I actually like it quite a bit. But definitely, it has maybe the worst part in Christopher Nolan's filmography, where Matthew McConaughey is flying through space and just explaining why he's flying through space. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like what he's saying is like it's because of the fourth dimension, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, so I know, David, that you're not a big fan of uh, the game, right? Uh, uh, it's been a long time, but I, I didn't okay. like it. There's a moment at the end, because there's a lot of implausible stuff that happens, but right. there's a moment Big at dumb. the end where uh, Michael Douglas jumps off this roof. Right. And later on, when it's revealed that actually this was all just a game, James Redhorn makes a joke where he says, he's like, if you didn't jump, I was going to have to push you. <laughs> and I love that moment because it suggests that it, it actually, for me, it makes so many other things slightly more plausible because it suggests that they all, that this organization always had a plan B. Yeah. And so sometimes it went according to plan and maybe right. it didn't go according to plan, but they made it so that it did. And I remember right. thinking like, I'm glad they put that in there because it actually, 
it, it almost made everything else okay for me. And that's a better explanation than somebody saying, good thing you jumped off that side of the building. <laughs> yeah. Which is the other side of that coin. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, you just deflated that for me. Um, <laughs> but that's, to speak, David Fincher, one that doesn't make sense but doesn't bother me. We talked about it very recently on the show. Uh, in in Seven, in order for them oh, to sure. find right. the one guy exactly one year after... Yeah. John Doe had to know that Brad Pitt wouldn't notice the painting was upside down the right. first time. He had to know that it would take him another day to like unspool the which, one. That's kind of that's implausible, but it doesn't bother me. Which maybe he knew that like, okay, well, the wife is out of town. She'll get back at a certain time and then they'll notice the painting. But again, it still has to be the one year to the day yeah, thing. And maybe yeah. she doesn't notice right away. But even then that I'm okay with it because it's suspense. And it also speaks to a very meticulous killer yeah and it also takes place in some sort of hell dimension that's that's yeah. not, like, there's a certain like, nightmare poetry to that film yeah, yeah, yeah. like anything in basically that's, looking at uh that's a movie that i loved then hated and now really like you hated that movie at some point yeah that's interesting I yeah i think i think it was probably after the game and fight club when it was two david fincher movies in a row that i didn't like yeah that i convinced myself that i didn't like seven either what's our take on panic room uh, I love it. I think it's awesome. Scott loves it. Thinks it's awesome. I don't remember liking it. I saw it once. I don't. Uh, I don't think about it very often. I think I should revisit it. There are things I love about it, and then other things. Some CG camera choices oh, that I'm but, not a big fan of. Oh, but I was talking about this on Twitter with actually a friend of the show, Kristen Sales, who did not respond to my comment. Kristen, if you're listening, but um, she was commenting on exactly that. that The camera moves are ridiculous and they are, but there's also something to me. So like freeing about that. Mm -hmm. And at a time when, as we kind of said, there are so many, especially studio movies that are so carefully controlled and so purposeful and relentlessly uh, programmatic and sensical that there's just something great about the fact he's just making decisions just because he wants to make those decisions. Yeah. uh, It's interesting. I was thinking this, uh, it's like, oh, he's doing just because he can. Right. And I'm split on that. On one hand, it's just like, yeah, but come on, man. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's just like, hey, good for you. Not <laughs> enough people do that. But also Panic Room is not that serious a movie. That's true. So it kind of has that license to be a little silly. It's uh, Jared Leto and yet another insufferable uh, character. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, but, but at least he gets killed. Yes, he does. Uh, <laughs> by a much more awesome character. Yeah. Which is uh, Dwight Yoakam in that ski mask. <laughs> Um, all right. And then to, to bring it full circle, I want to go back to the pirates movies and, um, I want to ask you guys, is we this do those for a commentary sometime? I think I've already <laughs> suggested it. Um, all five, uh, or the three, just the three, the three, those are the ones yeah. that count and they're long enough. Um, yeah, seriously. So, uh, but when I, is this a recent thing or is it just recency bias on my part? I think a big part of the reason why, part three especially is so convoluted is that they started shooting it before there was a script and they were kind of making up stuff uh, as they go along, which is why there's two, you got, I don't know. You have seen them. You like the movie. Yes. You probably don't tell you don't remember, but there's two different nine pieces of eight in the movie. Really? There's the hmm. actual nine pieces of eight that Tom Hollander's character has at the beginning. Okay. When, when he, after he hangs scores of <laughs> women and children <laughs> reminder, that's how the third pirates movie starts yeah. off. Um, anyway, and then the pirate scene when, when it's the pirates pieces of eight, it's they're like not really pieces of eight. They're little like pieces of junk that they mm-hmm. have on them. And that really feels like, well, when we started shooting this part, right. we thought that we were going to have actual pieces yeah. of eight. And now we had to make up this other thing. Yeah. Um, so 
is that idea of movies being, uh, especially like parts two and three of movies, uh, you know, franchises being written as they're being shot. Is that a more recent thing? I don't, it's definitely not a recent thing as far as like movies in general go. I mean, Godard did this uh-huh. throughout his entire career. Um, and I'm sure it goes back. I mean, Casablanca was famously kind of written on the fly as was, um, uh, the aforementioned, uh, notorious, which was like oh, okay. constantly huh. being rearranged and stuff okay. by, uh, the producers and such. And I think with those types of movies from any period, you can, I mean, you kind of <laughs> cut the wheat from the chaff, you know, you can see how many filmmakers really have genuine inspiration and how many just have to work it all out in advance and don't bring much to the table on the day, which is why I've actually, and why song to song is one of my favorite movies of the year is enjoyed most of Terrence Malick's recent films is that they're so spontaneously invented and you can see how abundantly creative he is that there's kind of new avenues to appreciating movies in general and his talent specifically uh, in watching them. Well, and it's interesting to talk about Malick in this regard, uh, to go back to what I was saying at the very beginning, which is, um, moving away from story and character and embracing instead like cinematography and editing. Like that's what his movies are. They are discovered in the cinematography and especially the editing. But there, I would also there argue are, that there are characters. Yeah. Performances are very strong. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, yeah. So I don't mean to suggest that that isn't important right. to him, but, um, but yeah, he's a guy who essentially, and I guess rather famously at this point, like finds the movie that he wants in the editing and And in the shooting too. I mean, yeah, he writes, or at least when he wrote full scripts, I don't think he has for his last three movies, Uh, but when he writes full scripts, he writes way more than he needs. I mean, the screenplay for days of heaven, I think is like 180 pages and the film's like 90 minutes. Yeah. It's, and it, so it's, it's how much would you guys like to watch the six hour thin red line? I think about it all the time. I I don't think I would anymore. (laughs) I would because it's just that thing where he's cut all the stuff that he didn't want in the movie and it's gone for a reason. I do. I do Uh, love thin red line and it would be, it would be fascinating to watch it. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. Very immersive undoubtedly. But, uh, but yeah, so I feel like he's, he's a director who is maybe like one of the best arguments for, uh, for, yeah, movie doesn't have to necessarily be about its story and characters, but what's interesting is if you sometimes if you embrace cinematography and editing and music and that sort of thing, if you embrace that as your primary means for expressing whatever it is you're trying to express, you can actually enhance character and story yeah, sure. uh, in that way. So, sorry, that, uh, that actually doesn't necessarily play <laughs> into this discussion. Sorry about that. No, but Well, that's okay because this discussion is over, I think. Yeah, totally. Everyone should see the three Pirates movies. Yeah. The only three. <laughs> uh, you haven't even seen I haven't the, seen four and five. Uh, yeah, well, I'll say, I mean, four is the best Rob Marshall movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't dislike Chicago, actually, so I don't uh, know that I would agree. I've never liked Chicago. And I have my moments with it, but... Uh, I like uh, Ian McShane in the fourth one. That might be the only thing I like about it. <laughs> well, I'll say the thing that I uh, said on the podcast. I said this in the movie journal when we were talking about the Pirates movies, which is I was watching the first three, the Gore Rubinsky ones, and being and thinking like, wow, this world is so immersive and inventive. I wonder why you don't hear more about fan fiction in the set in the Pirates world. Mm-hmm. And then I saw the fourth movie, and I was like, oh, that's what this is. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, it's not awful. It's not really worth your time, though. Okay. Anyway. That's not what we're talking about. Watch the Gore Rubinsky movies. 
Um, and check us out at battleshipretention.com. That's where you find all kinds of movie reviews, uh, including reviews of, um, you know, probably some, most of the, our top five of the year so far, they're probably covered in some way, shape or form uh, on the website. Um, that's at battleshipretention.com. You can email us David at battleshipretention.com. That's where you send, uh, any questions you have for our video mailbag segment, ask BP, uh, or Tyler at battleshipretention.com. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at Davy Pretension. Tyler's at Tyler Pretension. Uh, what's going on at More Than One Lesson? You're taking the week off? I'm taking three weeks off uh, for sort of, I Sabbatical. guess you could call it a mental health break. Uh, but my... Um, Work-life balance. It's what it's all, it's what it's all about. Yep. Um, and More Than One Lesson is work. Um, <laughs> no, but thankfully my uh, co-host Reed Lackey has uh, decided to step in. And so there will be episodes released uh, during those three weeks. And so he uh, talks about this week... His Rita's an odd guy. His favorite movie of all time is The Exorcist. His second favorite movie is the Franco Zeffirelli miniseries Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, oh, wow. So he talks about that this week. Okay. Um, blah, 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 blah. We're on Instagram and Facebook. You know, Snapchat, uh, Battleship yeah. Pretension with no vowels. If you can, uh, I don't, I gotta, gotta get better at that. Um, uh, I'm a bad millennial. Um, Scott, uh, you're an ace millennial. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, aside from Twitter, I'm a terrible millennial, but I do spend a lot of time on Twitter at rail of tomorrow. Uh, and I'm at bellshippretension.com. Of course, I just wrote about Romare's, uh, Pauline at the beach, uh, a very confessional piece on my behalf. If you don't mind my saying, um, and I don't and <laughs> also at criterioncast.com where I recently wrote about Ugetsu and recently recorded an episode about blow up. That's fun. Uh, but again, first and foremost, right. at battleshipretention.com. Obviously. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.